as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22, verses 63 through 71. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We heard it ourselves from his own lips. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We continue to hear the powerful reading of your word, which is sharper than any double-edged sword, and it pierces to our very soul. Lord, we hear about sufferings that pierce the Savior, and uh, they are hard to hear of. And yet, Lord, you have lessons to teach us through them, lessons about who Christ is and what we are to do as followers of the Savior. Teach us these things this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Imagine that you've been selected for jury duty. How many of you have ever been selected for jury duty? Um, Or maybe you've even gone into a courtroom before and seen what it looks like. You know, I want you to imagine this because this is where Luke puts us. Today in our sermon, this is where he puts us in our text in in a courtroom, sitting on the side of a courtroom and looking over the whole scene and surveying what's going on and hearing the back and forth. Right. You, you, you can put yourself there almost. And you see, you know, uh, the, the courtroom spread out with all of its chairs and the witnesses and uh, the judge's bench. And in this case, you have. Uh, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was the highest council according to Jewish law. And uh, you can almost picture, right, the men with their beards, um, and they're all spread out around the room. And into the midst of it comes Jesus. Luke puts us here as a kind of jury uh, to do what he's been doing all along. He's been doing this from the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. He wants us to see and to hear everything that's going on. He wants to give us a true account of what really happened with Jesus and his accusers so that we can come to a firm conviction of who Jesus really is. That we can be settled as as a jury of sorts and say, I know what I am to believe about what they are accusing this man. I know what I believe about what they are accusing Jesus. 
Do you have your mind made up this morning about Jesus, who he is? That's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus is judged by sinners. First, we're going to see, uh, we're going to take a look at the sinners who sit in judgment over Jesus. That's the first big thing we're going to look at. Sinners who are sitting in judgment over Jesus. And then we're going to to take a, a turn in the middle of this message and look at Jesus who sits in judgment over sinners. But first, these sinners who sit in judgment over Jesus, what do they do? Well, the first thing we see them doing as they take their place over him, judging him, making their assumptions about him is that they mock him. This is hard, hard to read, isn't it? They play games with him while he's waiting to be delivered into the courtroom. Jesus on the night he was betrayed, was delivered to the palace of the high priest. First, he went to uh, the the father-in-law of the high priest, Annas. And then he was led from that chamber to another chamber, to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And during that night session, um, the the people, the, the high priest and those surrounding him were pulling together their case against Jesus. But here he sits waiting to be delivered before that great council the Sanhedrin. But while he waits, he is mocked. The soldiers who hold him there tie a blindfold around Jesus. They cover his face and they play a game called Prophet, guess who hits you? It's a disgusting game. Jesus' face covered. The next thing he feels is a man Walking up, he hears him around him and then suddenly a blow right in his face. And he feels spit hit hit the side of his head. And he hears the voice of a man staring, prophet, who struck you? You call yourself a prophet. Who was it who hit you? Guess who it was. And this goes on. Who knows how long is The people who hold him in custody just make a game, a show of this as they sit in judgment over this savior. And here's the the hardest part about all this, I think, is that Jesus knows exactly who hit him. These guys don't know how right they are to call him a prophet. He's already prophesied that this very thing would happen. He said, I'm going to be bound. I'm going to be struck. I'm going to be mocked. They're going to make fun of me in the worst way possible. And he knows the very DNA of the, of the men who come up and smack him in the face. He knows the DNA of the spittle that runs down the side of his face because he made those men. He crafted them. Jesus is the son of God who made these menaces in his image. So why would Christ accept their their blows to his face? Why would he accept their spit in his hair? Why would he accept their cruel words that pierce his heart? Why would this, why would this gentle savior accept this? Why would he accept their judgment over him? And the answer that we have to give is he accepts all of this to rescue us from our sins. I told you 
um, weeks ago that we were going to start to see things get very brutal and difficult for Jesus. We are going to start to see him accepting some of the worst forms of mockery and shame. And that when we see that, we need to understand that Jesus isn't some ragdoll who's being, tasked, uh, who's being tossed around in the cogs of history, just a man who was misunderstood and just got caught up in the cogs of history. No, Jesus is going to the lowest possible place he can go to save us from our sins. It's like he is stooping down and lowering his face into the darkness, bending it down to deformed humanity so, he, so that he can look at the worst of it and take it on himself. Why? So that he can accept hell on earth for us. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is taking on every drop of the Father's cup of wrath against sinful humanity. He's stooping down and he's drinking it. Why? So that we can have salvation. So that we can receive the blessing. So that we can receive the Father's joy and welcome instead of the mockery of sinful humanity. And so when Jesus hears these words, who struck you? Who did that? He knows the man who did it, but he also knows that the the ultimate answer is my father. My father is leading me to this dark place of shame and suffering because he wills that I save sinners through it. I have to tell you this because you have to see in this mockery and the shame and and this judgment that Jesus is receiving. You have to see that this is what he is doing for you. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is the very image of the one and the picture of the one who went to these depths for your salvation. Never forget that. Never forget it. He doesn't just die in some you know, uh, sudden and quick way. He, he takes the most shameful death he could take on because that's what your sin deserves. And that's what he's taking on in your place. It had to be one of the most humiliating things that Jesus took on to sit, to, to, uh, to be approached by these sinners who sit in judgment over him. Shameful. But it only gets worse in the trial. So we move from the mockery that Jesus receives to then this mock trial that happens. And I think you can see right away that it's not really, it looks good on the outside. It's not that kind of direct mockery where Jesus is getting beat up in the face. But this trial is a mockery nonetheless. It's rigged. It's a kangaroo court, as as they call it. Uh, Because there, sinners in the form of, I don't know, you know, 70 70 so bearded men peer down at Jesus and their minds are already made up. It's not a real trial. It's just a way to trap Jesus. It's just a way to get him to the cross. 
If ever you needed evidence that an educated group of elites could get together and come to a dreadfully wrong and sinister conclusion, here it is, right here. These 70 men could get together and together they could already know all of their hearts united. We must trap the Christ. We must put an end to him. And so they ask him in in verse 67, if you are the Christ, then tell us. But Jesus sees right through it. He doesn't pander to them and to their, their mockery of a trial. He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. Why does he say that? Because he's already been telling them over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Luke. He's shown it to them in a hundred different ways. And then he says, if I ask you, you will not answer. In other words, if I were to ask you about what it means to be the Christ, for me to be the Christ, if I were to turn around and ask you, for instance, how can David's son also be David's Lord? He asked that, right? Driving at his identity. You're not going to answer me. You didn't answer me before. Why are you going to answer me now? If, if I speak up for myself in this mockery of a trial and ask you, was the baptism of John the baptism from God or from men? He, he already asked them that, leading again to his identity as the one marked as, off as God's Messiah. You're not going to answer me. So if I ask you a question in response to yours, you will not answer me. If I tell you I am the Christ, you will not believe. Just imagine for a second, you know, as as you sit on and watch this trial from the sideline and take it all in, imagine how it would would feel in Jesus's place to be trapped. You ever felt that way? You, You want to speak up for yourself. You know you're being unfairly treated, or, but, but you know there's nothing you can say to someone. Their mind's already made up. It's one of the most frustrating experiences that you can imagine. And that's where Jesus is. He says, look, what do you want me to say? Do you, you want me to just go ahead and give you the ticket to my, to my crucifixion? It's exactly what they want. What are we to make of this as we see these sinners who sit in judgment over Jesus? I think one of the important applications for us today, friends, is that Jesus is still mocked this way today. He's mocked daily. He's mocked by the world, by by the world around us. Imagine that we introduced ourselves to 25 people in the Oregon district of Dayton. In fact, you know, this summer we have plans to take a group of youth and, and other people to the Oregon district and, and, and to, talk about, um, to talk with people about matters of eternity and just you know, dialogue about important matters of faith and tell them about Jesus. What would we hear as we tell them about the reality that Jesus is the only way? He's the way and the truth of the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. What are we going to hear if we tell people about the dreadful realities of hell, but the beautiful realities of a savior who holds forth salvation to the world today. Well, I think you all can imagine some of what we'd hear. First, we'd hear a good dose of mockery. We'd hear, you seriously believe stuff like that? You gotta be kidding me. You wanna tell me about heaven? Guess what? I'm going to hell. Sue me. 
perhaps even worse mockery than that. You know? Christians have been called haters of humanity, haters of the world. You can imagine the kind of mockery that we would, you know, that, that we do receive um, and, and the kind of jokes and insults that pour in as people hear about the saviors and the realities that he says um, in his word. But then we'd also hear people, um, and we, I think a lot of us can resonate with this, we'd also hear people who put on a kind of mock trial with Jesus. You ever talk with someone like that? You know, you're talking about the gospel to them and they seem to take an interest, an interest but just so that they can, just so that they can debate and just so that they can show you how much they really don't like what you're saying. Feels like their, their heart really isn't open to what you're talking about. It feels almost like you're in that Sanhedrin stuck saying, no, I'm, I'm trying to tell you about the Savior. But they always, whenever you present the beautiful evidence for the Savior, they always have um, a, a device in place just to shut it down. Their heart's already made up. It's already hardened. Mockery, mock trials. That's what our Jesus still receives from a world that does not want to hear from him, that does not want to be told by him how to live and what kind of lifestyle he wants them to live. That's the kind of world that, that shirks back when they hear of a resurrected Savior who is Lord and says, not Lord of me, no, not Lord of me. But before we think this is just all about the sinful Sanhedrin and uh, the sinful council of the world as they look on Jesus, Jesus today, I think you know from me, I don't, you know, I don't let myself get away with stopping there. And, and I want you all to say, this is about me too. Because what is the essence of mockery of Jesus? It's not just, you know, we, we throw insults back at him. Mockery of Jesus at its very core is this. It's a failure to take him seriously. It's a failure to take his words seriously and, and feel the weight of Jesus' words as, they, as they, they reach us. I wonder if that ever happens to us. I think, I think, we, I think we do that. We hear Jesus speaking to us in his word and we walk away completely unchanged. We just ignore it. We, we know that God's word instructs us and that Jesus speaks to us in his Bible. And yet there are seasons of our life sometimes where we, we leave it untouched, unthought of. And I think what Jesus is telling us is that when we refuse to listen to him in his word, when we keep his word at a distance, it's like we're putting the cloth over, trying to put the cloth over Jesus's face and blindfold him and, and to throw blows at him with the rest of the world. Our hearts, just as much as the world around us, they need to be won over by this Savior so that we really listen to him and lean into his word and, and depend upon it and say, teach me, Savior, I am open to what you have to say to me. And in order to be won over to that, we really have to see who the Savior really is here. That's the second thing I want us to see in this text is that Jesus, 
is also in this passage. It's not just the sinners who are there sitting in judgment over Jesus. But as we look on from the courtroom, on our sideline in the courtroom, we also see Jesus. We see him clearly as one who sits in judgment over sinners. Now notice with me how the Savior in this passage is in chains and there are bruises on his face and spittle running down his head. And yet he manages to take over the courtroom just in in, in a few simple words. And he turns that courtroom upside down to show who he really is with just two titles that he reveals. With these two titles, he, he shows, he exposes that it's those who mock him who are really in the wrong. And it's him who's really in charge of the courtroom. Now we see this starting in verse 69. What does Jesus say? It's the first title is the son of man. He says to the Sanhedrin as they look to capture him with his own words. But from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That's the first title that Jesus used, uses to seize control of the courtroom. Son of man. Now, what is, what is the son of man? We've, we've heard of where this title comes from. Where does it come from? Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7, I once had one professor, uh, professor in seminary. Daniel chapter 7 was his favorite chapter. And he said... Uh, he would, he would say that there, was, there were two right answers to his question. You know, one was Jesus, right? If you answer, he, he asks you a question. If you answer, oh, Jesus, you're, you're, probably, you're probably right. Another, another answer you could give is Daniel chapter 7, and you're probably right. And so, uh, you know, so it was a joke. We would be talking in his, in his classroom, and he would ask a question. If someone wasn't paying attention, they'd be on. They'd say, Daniel chapter 7, and he'd, he couldn't say they were, that they were wrong. But Daniel chapter 7, in this case, is the place that Jesus goes to to show the Sanhedrin who he really is. Um, And there's this key character in that chapter. He's called the Son of Man. What does the Son of Man do? Well, in in Daniel chapter 7, we get this glimpse into the interior of the throne room of God. Pull back the curtain. Look into the corridors of heaven. And what do you see? Well, Daniel has this vision of that. And he sees... The glory of God on high and coming to that glorious throne room is one like a son of man. And that son of man ascends to the ancient of days and he receives power and authority to judge the world. That's who the son of man is. Judge of the world. Ruler of the kingdoms of the world. Sanhedrin knows exactly what Jesus is talking about as soon as he says this, that he is claiming to be the great judge, the judge of the one who will take his place at the throne room of God and judge all men, not like this kangaroo court that that's currently in in place, but like the perfect justice system where God himself sits on the throne and in equity judges the people's. Jesus Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And from now on, in other words, 
You go ahead and put me on the cross. You're only sending me to the throne room of God to take my seat and to judge you in power. Do you believe that that's who Jesus is? The son of man who judges the world? Who judges even the high courts of of the world, be be it the Supreme Court and their decisions? The Sanhedrin and their decisions? NATO and its decisions in any, any high court of the world, Jesus stands over it and he stands over the Sanhedrin here. But notice what he's claiming. This is what offends the Sanhedrin so much that he says not just that this son of man himself, not just that he comes to the ancient of days, but also that he is going from now on to be sitting at the right hand of glory and power. And this gets the wheels of the Sanhedrin turning you know, in their minds. And they say, wait, that can only mean one thing. That you're claiming to be equal in glory and power with God himself. You're claiming to be the one not only who comes to the throne room of God, but the one who takes your seat on the very throne of God. That must mean that you are equal with God in power and glory and that you're claiming to be the son of God. And so they ask him in verse seven, is that what you're saying? That you're the son of God? And Jesus responds, you have said that is so. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean, is is Jesus kind of dodging the question? Is he saying, well, you know, you're the one who said that, not me. No, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think that what Jesus is saying is bingo, bingo. And guess what? It came right from your mouths. You nailed it. I am the son of God. I've been saying it in a hundred different ways. And now you're trying to hang me on a cross by saying that's who I am. But guess what? You've confessed it yourselves and it's your words that are going to hang you in judgment. They're trying to catch Jesus in blasphemy. In, in blasphemy. But really, what does Luke say? He says it in verse 65, that it's all these sinners sitting in judgment over Jesus who commit blasphemy. Because they refuse to acknowledge him truly as the son of God, even as that comes out of their mouths. They call him prophet. They call him son of God. They call him Christ. And yet they refuse to embrace him as such. The Sanhedrin says, what further evidence do we need? We've heard it from your very mouth, Jesus. What further evidence do we need to put you on the cross? Well, friends, I submit to you that we should ask a similar question of the Sanhedrin as we apply this passage. What further evidence do we need? We've been sitting the side of the courtroom seeing all this take place. We've seen the sinners as they sit in judgment over Jesus. We've seen Jesus as he sits in judgment over the sinners. And I submit to you the question, what more evidence do you need? What more evidence do you need to silence our mocking tongues? What more evidence do you need to receive Jesus as Savior? 
What more evidence do you need to bow your knee to him? What more evidence do you need to confess him before the world as the son of God? To take their mockery as a result. Luke is closing the books on the case for Jesus. And it is a perfect case for who Jesus is. You can't mistake it. You can only reject it. I submit to you that if you have not embraced Jesus as this savior and bowed your knee to him as Lord, that now is the time to do that. Do what the Sanhedrin stubbornly refused and say, Lord, I have sat in judgment over you for too long. I have tried to silence and mock you for too long. You are the Lord. You are the Savior. If that is the confession of your heart today, then you have the hopes that one day you will stand before that Savior as he judges the world. From now on, that is where he is, at the throne room of God. And one day we will see that scene that Daniel saw unfold. We'll see the opposite of what we saw in this passage. We'll see Jesus judging with equity. Jesus righted for the wrongs that were done against him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how often we are burdened by the injustices of this world, even injustices that we experience. But Lord, what we want to see today from, your, from this passage is the great injustices that were done to our Savior. And we are ashamed, Lord, of the ways that we heap those on him at times by refusing to acknowledge him for who he truly is. We ask, Lord, that you would work in our hearts, submit us uh, to bow to this Lord and to call him son of man, son of God, the Christ. And Lord, make us bold to do what Jesus did in this passage, to stand before a world that wants to trap him And nevertheless, confess him and receive its mockery as we look to the life to come and the courts that come in the throne room of God. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.